0: For that, I'm just getting you ready, setting you up. So this is God's word. So Um, no emails tomorrow. So, but uh, Genesis chapter 14 is 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 an interesting chapter, um, as you'll see, and we're introduced to an interesting character in it, which is why I say that because there's there's some stuff that we need to to learn. Um, Corey did a great job uh, pronouncing his name today, Melchizedek. Um, and so we'll learn much there about him, um, but how it also uh, points us to a greater reality, which is found in Christ. So I'm going to read today, I'm going to start at verse 8, and you are right, I'm trying to get out of reading those difficult names um, and stumbling over my words, and, um, but we'll, we'll, I'll summarize 1 through 7 as we get started. But I'll start in verse 8 and read uh, to the end of the chapter. And this is God's Word. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zebo- Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sedum. What Laomor, king of Elam, Tidal king of Goyim, Amphriol, king of Shinar, and Ariok king of El- Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sedum was full of bitumen pits, and, the, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, uh, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Aner, and, and these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants uh, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people." After his return from the defeats of Kedeleomor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand, give us hearts to receive what you have to show us from your holy word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you can see, today's text reads like something from Lord of the Rings. Uh, But unlike those stories... The story that we have just read is a, is a real and true story. It actually happened. A story that, that, that's, that's orchestrated by God's good providence that is propelling us to the ultimate goal of history. And you'll see in our points today how the story progresses, progresses from something that almost seems a bit out of place when you compare it to what we read uh, so far in chapter 12 and chapter 13. It almost seems a bit random, this, this whole war between these kings. And simply, if you just look at the first 16 verses of, uh, of chapter 14, God is, is nowhere mentioned. It's just this massive war that happened. But we'll see that Abram and us end up in the place where we need to be. And you'll see it in our three points as they kind of build on top of one another. And they're not written in your worship guide this week. But as you write these out, you'll see that they build on top of one another. You can't have one without the other. And they're all moving us toward a goal. So the first point will be the battle of nine kings. The second point being the rescue of Lot, Abram's nephew. And then finally, the revelation of the true hero. So the battle of nine kings, the rescue of Lot, and then the revelation of the true hero. So in verses 1 through 8 that I did not read you have this uh, confederation of, of five kings of Jordan who served this one king. So they all kind of uh, came under this one king named Kedor-le-Omer, okay? So for 12 years they served him, uh, meaning that they would send this one particular king tributes every year to kind of keep him off their back. We don't want this king to, to invade us, and we want to keep this alliance with him. But in the 13th year, they were tired of it, and they rebelled and said, we are not sending tribute, and so they immediately stopped sending tribute. And then then in the 14th year, uh, this king came with three other kings, so four kings total, to try to bring them back in line to their original agreements. They said, we don't like it that you're not sending tribute anymore. We want you to continue to do that, so we are coming to force you to do that by making war with you. So in this in invasion of these four kings upon this, these five kings, they unleash their fury upon them. And not just on the kings, but on every part that they inhabit. So it's a brutal scene where the cities of these five kings were completely annihilated, flattened, nothing left of them. Now this does sound like a, like a scene from, from Middle Earth or from... The Hobbit actually has a, uh, if you're familiar, if you're not familiar with The Hobbit, um, we can talk later, but The Hobbit actually has a chapter called The Battle of Five Kingdoms, uh, and so there's, it, it does sound like something out of, a, out of a storybook or a fairy tale, but this is a true incident. So one archaeologist that investigated this area uh, thoroughly said this, he said, I found that every village in their path had been plundered and left in ruins, and the countryside laid waste. The population had been wiped out or led away in captivity. For hundreds of years thereafter, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery, hideously unkempt, with all its monuments shattered and strewn in pieces on the ground. Now, this is an important detail to the Abram narrative because it places it uh, it places the narrative for us in history. That, that the story of Abram is, was not a myth, as some believe, and some still do believe that it was just a myth. But it's a true story about a real man and his real family whom God used to bring about the Messiah. So this is, we could say, this is world history and redemptive history uh, kind of uh, uh, coming together at this point. Uh, the Bible scholar Graham Goldsworthy calls this uh, uh, purposive history. He says, the history of the Bible is purposive, meaning the purpose which governs the events in all of, all of the world is God's purpose. So everything that has, ha- has happened in history and, and will happen in our world is governed by God's purpose. So what, what purposive history is, is doing is, re, is, is essentially revealing the mind of God to us. That the, that the selection of events and the recorded details that you read about in history books are, are, are governed not by military or political significance, although there is military and political significance in them, but that's not ultimately what it is. The significance is actually theological. The significance is actually about God and his ways. That God is the one who is always acting and always speaking throughout history. So what this tells us about this epic war of kings, although it seems like a random event at this point in the life of Abram, is that it's part of God's purposes, that it's actually leading us in a certain direction. And one of the main ways we see that is found in the details of verse 12. It says this, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and took all of his possessions and went their way. So last week we left off in chapter 13 with Abram and Lot separating, if you remember that. They, Abram lets Lot choose the land that he wants, and he chooses the one that's walking towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and he pitches, it says he pitches his tent near Sodom. So he is he has inhabited that land. But now in chapter 14, now we find that Lot is actually living in Sodom. No longer is he just kind of near the land, but he is actually in the city now. Now, we don't know if, I mean, maybe they would have picked him up if he was still just dwelling near. I don't know how close he was. If it was like North Augusta to Augusta, and they may have invaded him. But now he is in the, in, in the city, and now he is in a terrible fix. So last, just like last week, another dilemma that has Lot at, at its center, and it forces Abram to make a decision. And we see this, the decision that he makes in our second point in the rescue of his nephew, Lot. Now, I'm sure it's pretty clear at this point, at least it was for me, even in the little interaction that we have with Lot. Um, I mean, he'll come up again in the New Testament, uh, but there's not a whole lot of interaction that we've had with him so far. But hopefully you've kind of figured out that Lot is not the brightest bulb in the batch. He is not the one that we kind of hold up on the pedestal and say, hey, look at Lot, even though Lot is probably more, probably a better representation of our own hearts and who we are as believers. So this is, this is at least the, the third recorded time so far, and it won't be the last in our narrative, that Abram had to take responsibility uh, for his nephew in a significant way. The first being basically uh, Lot has lost his father, his father has died. Abram has taken him on essentially as a son. He has adopted him into his family. So you see that in chapter 12 of Genesis. The second way he's taken responsibility for him is is by giving him um, first dibs on the land. And we saw that last week where it was well within the rights of Abram to take to take the first choice, he gives it to his nephew Lot and says, choose whatever land you want, and I'll go the other direction. Then the third, in a lot more serious way, is happening now in our text. And that is a rescue that will put Abram's life on the line. Abram will actually risk his life to save his nephew. And the reason why is found in verse 12. They also took Lot, who was dwelling in Sodom. So again, like it's important to note that, that Lot's movement from pitching his tent near Sodom in chapter, chapter 13 is now actually living in Sodom. It's, it's good for us to understand that. Because as we saw last week, the symbolism that our author points out in Genesis is that a move east is synonymous with curse in Genesis. And Lot's move makes this pretty clear especially if you know the the future story that's coming up in Genesis about Sodom and Gomorrah and what happens there. So he has moved away, we could say, from God's blessing because he's moving away from Abram, who the blessing is promised to, and he moves toward curse. And the result of this is devastating. As Charles Spurgeon said, he said, those believers who conform to the world must expect to suffer for it. And the same is true for you and I. If we're not careful, we too can, can pitch our tents near Sodom with great intentions of reaching that place or, or reaching those people. But then eventually, more often than not, we eventually find ourselves living in Sodom, taking on their ways, getting caught up in their lifestyle, moving further and further east, moving further and further away from God's blessing. So I wonder what that looks like for you. Are you putting yourself right on the line of sin and temptation, thinking, I won't fall to this. I can can get right up to the line. I'm strong I can overcome this on my own, and I'll just go right up to the line. I won't let these people uh, influence me or that person influence me. I won't take on their ways and their practices. And let me just say, if that's your attitude towards sin, you are on a dangerous road. You are walking down a dangerous In Jesus' high priestly prayer, so this lets you know that you are, because Jesus prays for us in this way. In John 17, he prays to his Father for us in this specific way. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So this isn't a plea to say, hey, just get away from the world, don't interact with it, just hide yourself in the bubble of your home and, and never do anything with, with the world. Jesus saying, look, I'm not asking them to be, come out of the world. That would defeat the purpose but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So lots life choices demonstrates for us what kind of predicament it can land us in when we are walking that line when one is both uh, in the world and of the world and the extreme measures which it takes to, to pull someone out of that. Look at verses 13 through 16. Then one who had, who, who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Anne of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now, it's a pretty cool scene. Admittedly, Abram defeats these armies, these armies with only three hundred and eighteen men. But you may be asking the question that I had this week: Why does Abram rescue Lot? Why does he do that? I mean, I mean, really, doesn't doesn't Lot deserve this? Isn't Lot the one who, who put himself in this predicament? Isn't Lot the one who, who chose to move east? Isn't Lot the one who chose to move toward the most pagan city in all of the known world at that particular time? Isn't he the one who did that? I mean, Lot doesn't have anything to do really with the promise that God gave to Abram. It is made very clear that Lot is not... Abram's heir. Even though he's an adopted son of Abram, he is not Abram's heir. He is not where the line of the Messiah will come through. Why risk life and limb for this man? Why do that? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First, Abram can look back at his own life thus far and see how God rescued him when he didn't deserve it. God, in his mercy toward Abram, and in his commitment to his promises, remember, rescues Abram from Egypt. Abram, who puts himself into this crazy predicament, selling his wife essentially into sex trafficking, and God still rescues him in his mercy. We can look back even further to see how God uh, plucked Abram out of a pagan family and says to him, I am going to make, with a barren wife, I am going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you the father of my people. I'm reminded of Jesus' parable in Matthew 18 concerning the unforgiving servant. Maybe you remember that. This servant was forgiven much by his master, Jesus tells us. I mean, over and beyond what he actually deserved. Mercy is shown in abundance to this man. And how does this forgiven servant respond the minute that he has opportunity to show the same kind of mercy and forgiveness to another? This is what Jesus says in Matthew 18. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debts. So this servant, who has been forgiven much, has the opportunity to show the same mercy to someone else who owes him a great debt. he doesn't do it. So maybe Abram's thinking, here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity to show the same mercy and kindness and love to my nephew that God has already shown to me. The second reason, and this may surprise you, unless you're familiar with the story of Lot as it carries over into the New Testament is that Lot was a fellow believer. Lot was a brother in Christ. He was more than just a, a blood relative. He was a, he was a spiritual brother to Abram. And if you don't believe me, listen to Peter talk about this in his second letter, chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. Uh, and Peter says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, which means he's a believer, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So Lot, even though he is a a few cans short of a six-pack at times, Is a brother in Christ. So unlike Cain in Genesis chapter 4, who did not see himself as his brother's keeper, he tells God that, who am I? Am I my brother's keeper? Abram does see himself in this way. Abram was Lot's keeper. Abram was his brother's keeper, and he took this responsibility seriously. He saw it as his duty, not only before man, but before God especially, to go and rescue his nephew. I mean, you see it. There is absolutely no hesitation in what Abram does. He finds out Lot has been captured. He rallies his men, and he goes and rescues them. One commentator pointing to Abram's faith here said this. He said, faith makes us us independent, but not indifferent. It is enough for it, faith. It is enough for it to hear that its brother is taken captive and it will arm instantly to go in pursuit, which is exactly what Abram does. He walks in faith here as he, as he goes after Lot. Look at verses 14 through 16 again. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And he brought back everything, brought back Lot, brought back all of his possessions, brought back all of his servants, all of his women, all of his people, everything he, Abram, brought back. So I heard one pastor say, another Lord of the Rings reference here again, but this was Abram's Aragon moments. This was the time where he was able to, to, to mount the horses, gather his men and gather his weapons, and take out these trained fighters to defeat the army of four kings. Now, I couldn't find an exact number of how many Abram and his 318 were up against, but I did. this might remind you of a similar story in the book of Judges with Gideon, who when Gideon was going to go out to, he was called by God to go out to battle, but before he goes out to battle, God dwindles his army of 22,000 down to 300. So he dwindles his army down to 22, uh, from 22,000 to 300 to go up against three nations. So within the, those three nations, there is about, at least how many they killed, was about 120,000 plus troops. An enormous amounts. Let me just say, it is impossible, it would be impossible for, for, for our U.S. military to be dwindled down to 300 and then go up against multiple nations at the same time and come out with a win. Probably couldn't happen. So I'm speculating here, but I'm pretty sure this is probably the amount, if not more, of the people that Abram's small little army faced. A pretty incredible undertaking. Yet even as successful as Abram was, Abram is not the hero of the story. The application point here is not concerning how we are to stand up to bullies in our life. The application point is not to look at how much of a beast Abram was uh, as a military leader. It's not the application point. Now, maybe if the text stopped there at verse 16, maybe that would be. Maybe we could say, hey, let's look at Abram and see how he defeats his enemies and learn from him. But that's not the point. The point, rather, is to see how great God is. Because apart from God's intervention... Abram doesn't win this battle with 318 men. It's impossible. It's only by the strong hand of God that he comes out victorious in this battle. Because God's the true hero of the story. He's the hero we are to put our hope and faith in. And in our final point, we have this very thing, this very truth revealed to us. Look at verses 17 through 20. After his return from the defeats of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was priest of God most high. So here we have this unusual scene, only because we have this unusual character here named Melchizedek who, if, if you notice, he enters the story unexpectedly and he leaves the story in the exact same way. He just all of a sudden appears before Abram and he's there with bread and wine, uh, but he also comes up in various parts of the Bible. We see him again in Psalm 110, and then we had read for us from, from Hebrews uh, chapter 5 today, Hebrews chapter 5 through 7, we see him show up again, and he's, he's explained more. So we have to understand just a little bit, we're only going to scratch the surface here, of who is this man, Melchizedek? So here in our text, we are led on to several hints to the significance of this person in three verses, in verses 18 through 20, his life and ministry are described to us. So we're introduced to his authority. He's a king. He's a king. He's the king of Salem. But he's also a priest of God Most High. So he's a kingly priest. And this is, the first, this is the first instance that a priest comes on the scene. It's the first time in the Bible that we actually see a priest. Then... Uh, He speaks of God as the creator and the deliverer. He offers Abram uh, bread and wine after his victory. Then, in response to all of this, Abram tithes 10% of everything he has to Melchizedek. Just gives it to him. Which simply just reinforces the, the spiritual significance of this kingly priest. We know he's important simply because Abraham makes this move towards him. Abram in his actions is saying, even though Abram is a great man who has been promised great things by God, Abram is saying, This man is greater than I. This man is is pointing to a greater significance through his life. So it goes without saying that, that that Melchizedek is pointing to this greater reality that can only be found in the future Messiah, namely Jesus Christ Himself. So let me just read for you from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3 in the New Testament. And I'd encourage you later today to just simply read through Hebrews chapter 5 through seven to get a better description and picture of who this man is, but I'll just read these three verses for you. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So just four details the author of Hebrews points out about this man. So first, he says, by translation of his name, Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness king of righteousness. And then second, he is the king of Salem, which translate the word Salem actually can be translated as Shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. So he is also king of Shalom, king of peace. And then third, a very intriguing detail that we won't dive into, and that he is without father or mother or genealogy, no family line. There's lots of theories behind that. Um, but, but it's simply a way in which he is pointing to Jesus, who is without father or mother or genealogy either. So it's just a way in which he is pointing to the Messiah again through his life. And then fourth, it says he resembles the Son of God because he continues as a priest forever. So this is the same line in which Jesus is in. He is in this, line of, of this priestly line of Melchizedek. So all of Melchizedek's life, everything about him is pointing to this greater reality that we can only find in Jesus himself. So admittedly, he is a perplexing character, but he opens up so many doors for us theologically as this clear type of Christ in the Old Testament, which means if you hear the the whole the terminology, some something or someone is a type of Christ. It doesn't mean he is the Christ. It just means that he represents Christ in a significant way. And this is what King Melchizedek does for us. You can't you can't help but see it in Hebrews chapter seven. The author of Hebrews here is actually uh, expositing our text Genesis fourteen to show us this pre incarnate Christ figure in Melchizedek. So the English Puritan theologian John Owen wrote that the king of Salem was the first personal type of Christ in the world and arguably the most eminent. So back to Genesis 14, we were able to see via king Melchizedek's names and actions this truth before us. In his name he is both the king of righteousness and king of peace. As one writer asks, who else in scripture than Jesus could more deservingly be called the king of peace and righteousness? Then in his own actions towards Abram, he brings out bread and wine, because he's a priest of of God Most High, to bless him. And it cannot be lost on us that this is a foreshadowing of the establishment of the Lord's Supper that Jesus uh, brings to his disciple in places like Luke 22, that we'll read during our time of communion today. But even as they gather around the bread and, and the wine, Melchizedek's purpose was singular, because he uses this moment to point Abram and the king of Sodom. Remember, the king of Sodom is still there. You've got to wonder what this guy's thinking, and us to the true hero of the story. Look at verses 19 through 20. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So as a priest, it was Melchizedek's duty to point others to God most high. That was his primary responsibility, and that is exactly what he is doing. And one cool thing to point out here is that, like Melchizedek, those of you have, who have been saved by Christ in the New Testament, it calls you a royal priesthood. The church is called a royal priesthood. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, "...but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation," a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So like Melchizedek, we too are to point others to God most high. How are you doing this? What does that look like for you? Who are you doing this toward? Um, one of my daughters and I were driving yesterday to Target area and, and a truck cut us off. Not in a bad way, but, you know, just got in front of us and, uh, quickly. And uh, on the back of his truck, was the first thing we saw in large print, was the question, uh, Where will you go when you die? Heaven or hell? Question mark. And what was, you know, just cut me off. But let me just say, that this is not how you are to do it. But if you are gonna use this, maybe that's your truck. If you are gonna use this message, just use your blinker, for goodness sakes. Might go across a little bit better. But I think a more impactful way in which you should do this is 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 to look at places like Micah six eight. Lots of, lots of places in the Bible where you could apply this. But Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Walking in humility and love reveals to a watching world that you have a king who is not of this world. It, 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 reveals, to, it reveals to a watching world and to those people that you interact with that essentially, ultimately, you are not of this world. That this world is not your home. And the kings of this world are not your kings. It reveals that you have a king who is greater and who is above every king, God most high. And that's exactly what Melchizedek does for Abram here. This is what he does for the pagan king of Sodom. And this is what he's doing for us who are hearing these words now in 2022. In his commentary on these two verses, um, the reformer Martin Luther speculates um, that this was probably a much longer sermon that Melchizedek preaches. Uh, He argues, uh, Melchizedek must have spoken for at least an hour, a man after my own heart, including such remarks unrecorded in Genesis as the following. This is his sermon. What are your gods whom you have worshipped thus far? My God alone is the Most High God. He has given this victory to his faithful servant Abram, and he's performed this miracle which you have seen. Is it not a miracle that this one man with a few allies routed and put to flight so many powerful kings and dreaded ones at that because of their great victories? Rid yourselves of your vile idols who have turned you over to your enemies to be plundered and accept our God who alone does great wonders. Now, if this were a scene in a movie, at this point in the film, Abram's response to Melchizedek's uh, sermon may have been offense. Abram may have been standing over in the corner and said, excuse me, but I'm the one who put my life at risk. I'm the one who just defeated four armies with 318 men. I'm the one who's done this. How dare this random king come out of nowhere and start declaring the victory to be God's. So he is the one who is done all of these great things. He is the one who has put, on, put his, uh, his life on the line. But this is not Abram's attitude at all. Remember, Abram's a different man from chapter, uh, 11, chapters 11 and 12 uh, onward. He is, he is being sanctified by God. So in fact, he knows that, that, that King Melchizedek, even King Melchizedek, this random king who comes out of nowhere, is actually greater than he is. And therefore, he knows that his words are true. Look at how Abram responds at the end of verse 21 in this very simple way. It says that, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything, a tenth of everything that he owns. Because Abram was aware at, at, that Melchizedek's role as a priest, and he saw it his duty to do this, to give to him in this way. And really what we're seeing here, again, is Abram worshipping God. Not worshipping Melchizedek, but worshipping God. So another way that we see that, that Abram uh, saw his victory was from God is, is in how he responds to the king of Sodom in verses 21 through 24. So the king of Sodom there finally breaks in, and he says, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So the king of Sodom is saying to Abram, Look, just give me the people that we've, that we've captured, that you've captured in this, in this battle, in these battles, and you can have everything else for yourself, which would just be a massive amount of riches. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So Abram says, you are not going to get the credit for this victory, that God has won, and you will not get the credit for the blessing that God has already promised me. I don't need your riches. So Abram, essentially here, is continuing to trust the promise that he was given back in chapter 12 of Genesis. He doesn't need the riches of a pagan king, and he makes this known in verse 22 when he repeats Melchizedek's words. Do you notice that? He says to the king of Sodom, I lifted my hands to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Abram points back to God because he believes the promises that God will make him into that God will make him into a great nation, and he believes that God is the one who will bless him, and he believes rightly by faith that the true King, the true High Priest is coming in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our great King in heaven, who rules over the entirety of this world, who rules over every person's hearts in this world, you are the God that we worship. You are the God that we sing praises to. You are the God that we uh, that we uh, trust in. That it is that it is your strong arm that we lean upon daily. So God, I pray that we would continue to be a people like Melchizedek. That we would be these this 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 royal priesthood, who is constantly pointing pointing back to god most high i pray that we would do that with our lives each and every day in whatever sphere you bring us into that we would be bold witnesses uh, for the glory of god god i do pray for my friends here who may not yet know you in this significant way i pray that they would understand how great you are through christ your son your word tells us that you, you are the one who sent your only son into the world so that our sins would be forgiven and so that we could have, uh, have, a, have a relationship with a holy God and that you cover us with the blood of your son. So I pray that each person in this room would experience that reality today. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.